Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Jump Scares, because loud, sudden noises are easier than writing a good movie. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Phantasma Billiards, Billiards Bar. <laughs> Have a hell of a time at the worst bar in town. God, at Phantasma Billiards Bar. We're keeping it. We'll do it live. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers. Um, I've been, I don't know, full-time writer-director for a little over 11 years now. And actor, we do all kinds of things behind, in front of the camera, in post. Todd's a full-time producer and musician. And we do all of that stuff and look at movies to figure out, one, how they do that. But also um, to figure out how we can do what we do better, uh, it all kind of coalesces into um, a show where we smash up a movie, hence the pestle, um, and grind it and see what it's made of. And through that little process, we cook up something of our own, a podcast. So, yeah, what? let's just get straight to it as we talk about a movie. What are we speaking of today, Todd? <laughs> Nice little segue there. Uh, <laughs> today, uh, the film we were talking about is The King's Speech. Uh, I think it's from 2010. Uh, so if you haven't seen that film, please pause the episode and go watch it. We're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Talk about a bunch of stuff that's going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. So, uh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah, we'll took. Uh, we'll take a look at a bunch of things. Man, I don't know if I'm going to make it today, bro. Yeah, I'm what's going on? What Have another sip happening? of your coffee, bro. I'm, I've got a stammer. Um, so. <laughs> hey, it's a perfect perfect episode to have it. Perfect so, time. It's fine. Um, so if I start sing-songing uh, my yeah, notes, exactly. you'll Saying know curse words every yeah, now and then. Right. <laughs> Cinematography and directing. <laughs> we'll look at some of the framing of Birdie. <laughs> Oh, perfect. <laughs> we'll look at some of the story and writing, uh, touch on a little bit of the British dry humor, as well as some of Birdie's struggles. Uh, and I also want to look at some of the performance um, aspects of the film, uh, the way they use vocal exercises and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film, the story of King George VI, his unexpected ascension to the throne of the British Empire in 1936, and the speech therapist who helped the king overcome his stammer, directed by Tom Hooper, screenplay by David Seidler, cinematography by Danny Cohen. And this version is featuring Colin Firth as Bertie, King George VI, uh, Jeffrey Rush as Lionel Logue, Helena Bonham Carter as Queen Elizabeth, and Guy Pearce as Edward. My job was to give them faith in their own voice and let them know that a friend was listening. That must ring a few bells with you, Bertie. Give a very noble account of yourself. Make inquiries. It's all true. Inquiries have been made. You have no idea who I have breathing down my neck. I vouched for you, and you have no... Credentials. But lots of success. I can't show you a certificate. There was no training then. Everything I know, I know from experience. And that war was some experience. My plaque says L. Logue, speech defects. Not doctor. There are no letters after my name. Uh, 
Lock me in the tower. I would, if I could. On what charge? Fraud. With war looming, you've saddled this nation with a voiceless king. You've destroyed the happiness of my family, all for the sake of ensnaring a star patient you couldn't possibly hope to assist. It'll be like mad King George III. It'll be mad King George the Stammerer, who let his people down so badly in their hour of need. What are you doing? Get up! You can't sit there! Get up! Why not? It's a chair. No, it, that is not a chair. That is... That is, that is St. Edward's chair. People have that carved their names on it. chair is the seat on which every king it's and queen... It's held by a large rock. That is the stone of Schoon. You are, are trivialising oh, everything. You trivialise... I don't care how many royal assholes have sat Listen to me! Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? By divine right, if you must. I am your king. No, you're not. You told me so yourself. You said you didn't want it. Why should I waste my time listening Because to you? I have a right to be, oh, and I what? have a voice! Yes, you do. You have such perseverance, Bertie. You're the bravest man I know. You'll make a bloody good king. That scene, the pacing of that scene alone is just masterful because they're going, you know, in in and out, right? It, it starts kind of in this really simple, pretty straightforward, you know, pacing. It's, you know, uh, conversational. Um, and then, you know, it takes a little bit more dramatic as uh, Birdie is wrestling with what to do, obviously, because he's, he's frustrated, but... It, there's that part of him that's clearly resisting, you know, uh, throwing it all away. Uh, and then it turns into this bang, bang, bang moment. And what I love about that little crescendo there is the finale. That line is so on the nose. It's so corny. It's so cheesy. And it would be so easy for that to not play. But the way they get to that line, I have a voice. The whole movie's about that. And the way they get to it is to be quick don't make it its own thing. Instead, make it almost a tail end of this whole other exchange that's happening. And now you've arrived there without feeling like you're going there. And that's so beautiful because it hits. It hits like a hammer. My God. Yeah, beautiful pacing. And then from there, because of that rat-a-tat-tat, you know, build up, we can let it breathe and just sit with it. And now you feel it. It's just sitting there, hovering over you. And you feel kind of the emotional weight of that exchange without the buildup. The buildup is everything else getting to it. And then the delivery is just this echo, this aftermath of it. Um, it's just a beautifully written and paced scene uh, for a lot of other reasons. Yeah. So I don't, man, what do you think of the King's speech? Uh, best picture winner of the year 2010 of our Lord. Um <laughs> Yeah, uh, you said you watched it last night with your family. Oh man, this is the this is the reason we make movies. It's this this movie right here. Like, I was thinking about it last night after watching it, and it, you know, in in the the year of our Lord twenty twenty three, where we've had pretty much since two thousand nine or ten uh, a Marvel movie a year, right? Mm. Um, 
I sometimes it's hard to remember what movies were like prior to superhero movies. Right. And to see a film like this and to watch an actual real life super like, you know, King King George the Sixth, Colin Firth makes King George the Sixth look like a superhero. And Jeffrey Rush, Lionel, look like a superhero. Both of them. And it's so easy to look at someone like a king and not relate to them. Right? Like, I think especially now, since, you know, since then we've had, you know, The Crown and a few other uh, uh, you know, like, like shows and movies about the, the monarchy. And it's just so, I'm so over that. Like Downton Abbey, I hate all of that stuff like, because I cannot relate to it because I would never be that way. Mm-hmm. But to take, to take a, 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 a role like King, like a King and to make it relatable is un, unbelievably difficult to do, not just in the acting, obviously, but in the writing, right? Like, I think everything about this movie is just perfect. There's nothing that I would change. The acting is flawed. like whoever, whoever cast this shit is, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't even know who the casting director was, but my God, how perfect of a, of a casting is this Colin Firth with Jeffrey Rush with Helena Bottom Carter just was flawless. Her performance too as Queen Elizabeth was like so emotional because of what she did do, but also because of what she didn't do the way that she just stood by him and she was constantly there. Even when she physically wasn't, you you felt her support. It was the one that found Lionel. She was the one that pushed um, uh, Birdie to go to Lionel. So, so in, anyway, her role is super important and she plays it so well. Uh, the writing is absolutely flawless and fantastic the the moments where lionel lets birdie figure it out for himself are super emotional when he records him and he could say no 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 listen and just play the thing for him but instead he gives him the recording and lets him discover it later on for himself like when he gets because he knows that birdie needs to get to a point where he is so like just down and destroyed that he knows the only way to fix this is to come back to, to Lionel instead of Lionel convincing him. No, trust me. Or just doing what everyone else in his life has been doing, which is to force him to do what they want him to do. Yes. And they do a great job of, of that with the, uh, with the archbishop mm. and uh, his father and before he dies and like basically everybody just telling him what to do. So anyway, I, I just want to end. Holy crap. This might be my favorite film cinematography wise that I've like ever just the way they tell the story with lenses is unbelievable. I'm not even a a DP and I can imagine you and any other DP watching this thinking, oh, my God, this is so beautifully crafted. You know, whenever he's walking up to a, a microphone or walking through a hallway, we have these wide angle lenses or walking into that big room where he's going to talk to the, the council, uh, the hall, these wide lenses are like, like when they're backing up and he's coming down the stairs with, with queen Elizabeth and or before they're she's queen. And we have this kind of anamorphic look or whatever. It's just, it's just so great. And then 
<laughs> the wall behind Birdie at Lionel's place is my favorite texture I've ever seen in a, in a film. Absolutely, absolutely. And they keep and they keep going back to it. They revisit it time and time again. It is the staple of we are now we are now safe and warm in Lionel's office. Like that wall reminds us, gives us this kind of like blanket of safety whenever we're in, wherever we're there. And we kind of like experience it or feel it. That or the fireplace, the giant fireplace, which is just gorgeous. So anyway, the writing is absolutely perfect because think about it. This is a hard, like if you were to sit down and say, I'm going to write a story about this, that's going to be not only interesting, but when best picture that that's hard, right? So you have to have purpose behind, you have to have really strong characters purpose behind what they're doing and what they're saying at all times and great actors and a great director and a great DP that there's so much that has to go into it. The writing is fantastic. The acting is otherworldly. Colin Firth is, is, I I have no words for how amazing of a performance he had. It's just absolutely incredible. The, the beats that he hits, the beats that, that he doesn't hit in order to actually hit that. uh, The clip he played is a perfect example of stammering to show, to, to show like the frustration, but then when he, uh, of stammering but then when he actually like gets mad and he's speaking through getting mad and he's not stammering as much you're you're like yeah 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 you're feeling for him but then you're also getting what what lionel is doing you know like bringing it out of him it's 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 absolutely incredible so yeah and the directing is otherworldly as well like everything is just perfect so good yeah those wide angle lenses man are wild because on the one hand, you know, it's, they're not necessarily beautiful, but because of the way they they block every like wide angle lenses in general, I'm not saying these in particular. They, obviously, these are beautiful because it's so many other things that they're doing there um, between the lighting, the blocking, um, the set design. Like it's it's all just masterful for sure. Um, and, and the way they use those wide angle lenses makes these locations feel so much bigger. Like I've always heard that, you know, the the palace or whatever. A lot of these rooms aren't very big at all. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I guess, but you know, they feel enormous. They feel like a stadium whenever you put this lens on, but to your point about the, the, the writing, I, so I'll link this interview in the, uh, in the, in the show notes, there's an interview with the screenwriter, David Seidler. I was curious. I was like, I, I, I don't recognize that name. What else has he written? Maybe I'll, know some of his other work and I don't it's it's kind of wild um he he's written a couple of Disney films um that I've heard of I didn't watch them but aside from that he his career hasn't been magical like uh and then to write this at you know 70 some odd years old um and win a, a best screenplay uh award it's amazing and I'll I'll link as a his acceptance speech too, because he gets up there and he makes a first thing he does is make a joke about, uh, you know, 
uh, I can't even articulate it, but he just makes a punchline at the idea that, you know, he's, he's 70 some odd years old and finally, you know, winning an award. Uh, and it's so clever, um, as a writer, that's kind of what you expect. And that's also one of the first things he says is, uh, a writer's speech for, you know, best writing, um, no pressure, you know? (laughs) Um, and, but it's amazing. Like this guy wrote this story, um, because apparently he grew up with a stammer. He stuttered growing up and he took a lot of inspiration from, uh, King George the sixth. And, and so through the process, uh, uh, he's always wanted to write this story and he put a pen in it for years. And then finally he was like, I think I'm at a place I can write this. He reaches out to see if he can, uh, tell the story. And it turns out he can't, they don't want him to write it because, um, until the mother dies. Mm. And so he has to wait until she passes away before he can get uh, all the information that he needs in order to write the story. And so it's that. And so he basically has to sit on it again for years and years and years and then come back to it even later. So it's just this really strange patient game that he had to play to tell the story that's very personal to him as someone uh, who's dealt with, you know, this exact same thing. And then the kind of the coup de gras, which is just wild. And again, I'll link this interview because I, uh, he says a bunch of other interesting stuff, but, uh, to me, the, the real cherry on top was as he's doing all the research because there's no, you know, documents saying what they're actually talking about in the room. He has to kind of imagine what it is. And he's like, I think this guy is using this particular manual. Um, uh, Freud, I, I want to say he said it was about speech and speech pathology. And he says uh, that his one of his best insights came from learning that his own uncle took Lionel Logue's uh, help. His own uncle was a patient of, you know, quote unquote, Dr. Logue. Uh, and that was where he got a lot of his insights about how he operates. And he's like, yes, based on what he's saying, I know, I just know that I know that I know that he's using this manual. And based on this manual, a lot of the conversation and things that are happening on, inside the room are going to be about your background, your history, your traumas, blah, blah, blah. And from that, knowing what we know about Birdie, right, I can extrapolate those conversation topics and the resistance. And it just became very informative of his approach. Um, But to kind of finally step up to the plate at, you know, 73, 74 years old and win an award, you know, it's this game, whatever it is you're doing in life, uh, but especially these big creative fields where all eyes are on you, right? King George. It's, I really think it's a game of patience and it's a, you know, a a last man standing kind of mentality of if you don't go away, you can't lose. (laughs) You only lose when you walk away, you know, and he didn't, he just stayed in there. Now, again, he, he, it wasn't that he wasn't doing any writing at all. He was, uh, I mean, you do a couple of Disney animated features, like you're, you're doing something right. You're in the right, you know, ballpark, but he wasn't getting recognition. No one, I didn't know who, I know a lot of writers names, like, even if I'm not going to, say their name off the top of my head. If I see them on screen, I'll be like, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, they also worked on this, this, and this. Like I had never heard of this guy and here he is winning an award in the seventies. Um, yeah, not, not a moment, uh, uh, too late, uh, or what have you. Yeah. But this movie for me, man, is just magical. I think your point about like how everything has kind of gone since this era, this time period, 
such a good observation uh, because there's not a lot of the King's speech. I mean, maybe to some degree, even over the previous 10 years, there weren't a lot of King's speeches being made. This is such a movie about small victories, you know, because that's the other great thing is you get to the end and it's not like, you know, he's over here delivering uh, Shakespeare himself, right? He's just getting through it much, much better, but not without perfections, right? There's that little uh, joke at the end. Yeah, you're you're still stumbling on your W's. Well, I had to give them something, let them know that it's me, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, because it's not perfect. And what a great idea that it's not going to be this perfect oratory, you know, uh, performance. Uh, and that's the subtle nuance of good drama that I think really sells this as a, a great film because it's not about grand gestures and victories. It's it's about small uh, incremental improvements and what it means to the nation at a, a, a turbulent time in their period. Yeah, I and God, the performances. Oh, my God. This is a, a an actor's movie. Seeing those two guys in the room, Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush, uh, just kind of going at it is amazing like they're doing so much there's so much small conflict um and sometimes big conflict for sure but it's just taught (laughs) right it's so on its face the setups are all really good you're you're hearing why this is going to be a a difficult time for everyone because there's a lack of faith from birdie's perspective we see him doing this ridiculous stuff with the marbles and you're gagging in your seat, just watching him trying not to swallow these things. Um, and the frustration, that camera shot when he gets out of his seat and spits all those marbles out, like it's this handheld chaotic fury, um, wide angled right in his face. Uh, it's just brutal. Um, and so, yeah, walking into Lionel's office, you're like, you have your work cut out for you, buddy. And Lionel is just patient. He's doing everything but talking about his problem, right? Uh, would you like some tea? I think I'll have some. <laughs> and, and, and eventually even George is like, are you going to treat me? <laughs> like, when are we starting? Um, and it's all part of his, you know, his own ide- ideology and philosophy of how to correct these things. Because it's, to his point, it's, it's, it's not a physical issue. Like, you want physical answers to... Something that maybe isn't really a physical issue. Now we can do some physical things, right? That can help um, and and strengthen your diaphragm, that kind of stuff. But ultimately, I mean, you have other things to work through. We'll do the mechanical stuff that'll help you get there. But there's all these other interesting elements psychologically that we're, we're going to have to get to or else you'll never, you know, you'll never have that peace. Like those exercises. And, yeah. And, and Jeffrey does an amazing job of, like playing this character that has absolute like there's never a moment where you don't think that he has respect for for Bertie and for Queen Elizabeth or before, I guess, Duchess. I don't know. Elizabeth at the time. <laughs> I don't know. But he has absolute respect for him. You know, the the moment he un- understands who she is, you know, when he walks away, he's like, well, this is my way or the highway. And then he walks back and he's like, what? So, you know throughout the the whole time and there's this this feeling of respect but also i'm not putting up with your bullshit yeah you know it's my way or the highway still you know no matter what 
you know, your highness, you know, <laughs> absolutely. And I think that's part of what wins George over despite himself, right? He's, he doesn't, mm-hmm. he doesn't want to give into that. But at the same time, if you go back and look at how the first uh, therapist was talking to him, doing not just the weird activities, but also with this kind of saccharine cloying, you know, speech, try harder, your Royal Highness. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's just like all this respect and it's not helping at all. Whereas the, the swagger and confidence of Lionel and uh, complete lack of forcing it. It's like, I'm not going to talk up to you and you're not going to talk down to me. We're going to be here in equals and we're going to figure this out as equals. And that's the only way this can work. It's such a radically different approach than what anyone else was doing in his life. I think that is also this kind of like, I don't know what to make of this guy. And even towards the end, right? He's doing the, the model airplane. He's like, I'm not going to croon at you. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's like, I wouldn't mind. He's like, yeah, but you're weird. And he's like, I take that as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> and it's just this dry kind of rat-a-tat, you know, way of speaking to each other that I don't know what to do with you. There's still this level of guard up that slowly kind of, falls down the the more Lionel just persists and he's just a steady ship that never wavers um and it's it's awesome because he never loses his temper Lionel right I don't think so he never raises his voice or bemeans him and in fact the only time he comes close to losing his cool is when his wife comes home <laughs> that's true I mean he does in the garden he, he mm, you know good point yep. but it's it's not that he's mad it's just he's He's, you know, when they have that, that fight, it's just, he's like, you, you could be so much more like you are more than what you think you are. And he's like, he's kind of raising his voice then, but it's not to your point. It's not out of anger. It's, it's out of, I'm trying to build you up. You know, he just oversteps, you know, with someone who could be the king. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. And right in the very next scene, he becomes king effectively. Um, Right. And yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And it's. That moment of him doing too much that almost ruins their whole relationship um, because he fires him then. Right. Um, And that whole sequence is amazing because that walk in the park is very strange. It's this handheld wide angle thing. um, And it feels very weird. And, you know, everything is off because of that camera angle. And as Lionel starts to do too much, everything changes. Right. We also have this heavy fog the haze i think that's kind of this emotional element as well as right he's psychologically doing too much and he's disconnecting and i know we can come back to that here in a minute because you know cinematography wise there's a lot of things that are interesting about using fog and haze but what i loved most oh man the end of the scene birdie fires him walks away we stay with birdie and watch uh lionel recede into the fog basically and as he's walking away, Birdie strikes a cigarette, right, during his exit. And I love that for so many reasons. For one, it's a dig at Lionel, right? This is kind of a signal. This is what I think of you now. I'm going to do this thing that you said is bad for me. I don't trust you. We, I've lost all faith. I'm going to smoke this thing. But the other thing that's happening is I love that it doesn't strike at first for a number of reasons. For one, uh, it's almost like a stammer. Right. That's his new that he's trying to get it going and it won't it, uh, 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 flame. Right. And so th- there's that. But it's also possible that the lighter just wouldn't light. And if that's the case, then Colin Firth didn't give up on the scene. He stayed with it, paused. Right. He stopped. The camera operator had to stop. Oh, wait, we're stopping. And he stops. 
strikes it, gets it lit, then he continues, keeps going. Now the shot may have been, now imagine just for a second, that the shot was supposed to be just him walking away, smoking, blowing smoke, right? I can imagine that working thematically as well. Like just in your face, I'm blowing smoke. And now he's leaving him in, in this cloud of smoke, so to speak. But if it isn't, Colin Firth had to stay in the in the moment. Crap, the slider isn't working. Cut, like, let's do it again. No, 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 no. Never, this is the, if you want to really piss me off as a director, give up on a scene. And there's a number of ways you can do it. It's not just uh, breaking, you know, and stopping, looking at the director. Oh, man, I flubbed my line. You don't know. You don't know what I was going to do with that in post. You might have just, you know, threw away gold. But the other, but there's other ways to, to give up on a line. It's sometimes feeding a, another actor a line or it's just breaking character for a moment with frustration. Like, ah, and then you get right back into it. No, you've already ruined the scene. You just broke character. Uh, instead, what he did if it wasn't, you know, intended in the, in the script, um, or blocked out, he just created a whole new layer of interesting, you know, action for the audience. Um, because now he's trying to do a thing and he, he can't do it. He's, he's trying to buck against, you know, but he needs them, right? He, he shouldn't be smoking the cigarette. There's all kinds of interesting things you can take away from him not being able to strike the cigarette if that was the intention um, or not. And so, yeah, Colin Firth, never breaking character, always staying in it uh, is, is a huge, I think, uh, lesson for, for, yeah, actors. Sorry, you were going to say Great something point. about the, the fog or the haze? Oh, I was just agreeing with you that that's amazing. And one of the things that Jenny said after that, that scene was fog machines. Do you think that they needed? And because, because the first thing I said was, did they plan for that fog? Did they, were they like, oh, it's going to be foggy tomorrow. We're going to do this, this shot here. And she goes, or how many fog machines did they need? It's like, great point. I don't know. You know, this is a major motion picture. They probably could fog up an entire area outside, you know, and then just put a big, a big key light up in the, in the sky as the sun, you know, like deep in the fog. Uh, so I don't know. I have no idea, but it's, it was an amazing, amazing moment. It is like, I could see it working either way. On the one hand, if they're shooting on location in London, you pick the right time of year, the right, you know, you shoot in the morning. It's it's probably de facto fog, but if it's not, then yeah, you are hazing up a huge field, and they they do that all the time for for big scenes, you know, on on major motion pictures, and so it's just tricky to do. You you want to stage it in a way that you're not breaking up your foreground. Instead, it's really there to break up the background and add all kind of depth and texture to the background. But it's also tricky because you also want to even. It needs to be perfectly even. And so uh, you can ruin takes just by getting these clouds, right? And you can see it moving. And now it doesn't feel like fog. It feels like someone broke out a haze machine for a music video. And yeah, it just becomes this whole headache. Um, it's beautiful. And how much time do you have to shoot? Oh, man. I mean, what? you're constantly running that thing and cutting it, fanning it. Um, yeah. And then you get, yeah, maybe like a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like it all, if it's, even if it's real fog, like that oh, stuff right. burns off pretty quick, right? You'd have yeah. to start really early, be ready. And as the moment that it's right, you go, and then maybe you get like what an hour, yeah. maybe, maybe, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it is pretty, you know, gross and foggy sometimes in, in England. So maybe it's easier. I, I'm really curious now. I want to go look that up, but 
Yeah, yeah it's an amazing scene. Great yeah, point. gross. Gross and what'd you call it? Sickly? Yeah. Uh, England. Hazy. Take that. Yeah. Oh, okay, maybe. It's not what I meant. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, the other performance stuff that I really liked was just some of those exercises that Lionel had him doing. Like, I've done those for, you know, I've had vocal coaches before. In fact, if you go listen to our first Right around the time we started this podcast, I, I was going through some vocal classes. I can't remember if it was before or after, but you might even be able to hear changes in my own voice based on me working through my own vocal exercises and trying to get more resonance into my voice, stop speaking from my head, start speaking more from my stomach, um, less from my chest. Yeah. And just being able to use, you know, more full resonance. And so some of those exercises we would do, though, is very much the the jaw loosening exercise where you see him um, clasping his hands in front of his chest and shaking like you're doing that to loosen up your jaw, um, relax your throat, your larynx, all that stuff uh, is all in tune um, together. You're you're one big instrument and you of all people uh, could speak much more you know eloquently than I. But as an actor, like those are really useful tools. The other thing another coach had me doing was floor breathing. If you lay down on the floor, this is what my my vocal coach was saying. You can't breathe wrong. If you lay on the floor on your back, you cannot breathe wrong. Um, so if you ever feel you know like you're struggling, just lay down, um, take a deep breath. It'll be great. <laughs> you know, I'm like oh that's interesting. And so some of those exercises are like we even do still today. Um, now I don't know how much of those are part of back then or what, but uh, I I like some of those exercises. And if uh, if you're looking for things, yeah. Um, my coach would have us do the the little jaw loosening exercise along with dropping your voice. If you're, if you're going through your register, it'll help you reach deeper tones and higher pitches through that. And just kind of work through your register up and down, up and down as you're loosening your jaw. And that's a really good way to kind of find new pitches for yourself. Yeah. Well, a little little freebie there for everyone who doesn't care. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's awesome. And, uh, and it was interesting because a lot of those made sense too. Like even if you have never had any kind of training, vocal training or anything like that, you know, what, what was it? The peas he was having? Tr- I have trouble mm. with the peas. Fall into it. A, a, a people, a people. Like that makes total sense whether you've had any kind of training or not. And or to say a bad word or something beforehand or to sing it, you know, then all of a sudden it feels fluid. It feels like you're flowing like water through the words, you know, all of it makes sense to people, whether they've had any kind of training or not. So I, it, it's easily, it's relatable on that front too. Yeah. And oh my God, the singing was genius as a writing tool. Brilliant to have him sing the worst parts of his childhood. (laughs) Mm Hmm. Because it's one thing to hear a guy, a grown man, talk about this difficult childhood, right? Let alone a king who's so, uh, you know, uh, dignified. But then to have him sing this kind of childish song completely reverts him back into this other state um, as as a child. So you see it and you feel it as he's singing it and on a completely different level. It's so much more visceral to have him sing such a heartbreaking thing genius like that's one of the most brilliant writing flourishes um i've 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 ever seen uh yeah on that same level story and writing wise i love british dry humor there's so many things that are happening in this story so it's a period piece and so language dialogue is already going to be a little bit different then on top of that you know 
we're dealing with a monarchy. And so the way they speak and their kind of dignity is, is also another layer on top of the period piece. But then also you're dealing with like British dry humor. And so some jokes aren't necessarily obvious jokes, but it also makes things a lot more funny. Things that wouldn't necessarily be funny otherwise. And so like simple stuff that's very British dry humor, the self-deprecating nature, right? Of, of Birdie, right? He's sharp. He's funny. And he even self-deprecates, you know, for, for humor's sake. There, there's that one joke that he says that's at, that's at uh, Birdie's expense or uh, that's at Lionel's expense where, do you think I value, you know, 12 pennies that much? I, I don't know what an Australian, I have no idea what an Australian might do for that kind of money. <laughs> like, like it's, so, it's such a great dig. Um, but that moment when they're in Lionel's home and his wife comes home and we see Lionel uh, start to lose it, right? He gets up and he stands in the corner and Birdie's confused. He's watching him. He's like, you all right, Logue? Um, and Lionel just stands there. Yes. Awkwardly standing in the corner. Everything's clearly not all right. Uh, but he's trying to act like, yes, everything's fine. <laughs> you know, I'm not moving either. <laughs> um, it's just really great, simple British dry humor. You know, it's just uh, beautiful. And when he introduces the, when he introduces George to his wife, you, you, you know, and, and you, you may not have met King George the <laughs> sixth. <laughs> That little pause, just just so perfect. It was just so great. Uh. Oh, it's amazing, amazing. Um, The other aspect, of course, is Bertie struggles throughout the film. Uh, At times, it feels a bit King Arthur, sword in the stone, like in the sense that King Arthur in the book and the cartoon, right? uh, He pulls the sword out and it's when he does it with ease is when it comes out right it's when he really tries to yank it that it won't budge which is a whole other layer for those stories um but principally uh the same thing birdie's doing is is kind of identical which is the harder he tries the worse the results and it's when he's you know being pressured and his dad is trying to get him and he's really trying and now it's all stopped up it's blocked right it's it's the problems, it's the weight of the crown, it's the pressure um, that's making him crack. Uh, and what he really needs is a light touch. And there, that's, you know, throughout the film. Uh, and so Lionel, you know, at times has to figure out the light touch to push his buttons because he still needs to get him to perform. But he does it in a completely different way than anyone else in his life. And so he's doing it much more subvertly because he's allowing the king to feel like a king, you know, a lot of the time without letting him know this is what I, I'm actually getting you to perform. You're dancing for me right now and you have no idea. And he also never points it out. And I think the best case in point is the scene that we played from that soundbite, um, which is when he discovers, right, this is uh, Lionel kind of taking back his authority. And this is right after Bertie discovers Lionel isn't a doctor. And now he's questioning everything about him. And so... Lionel, what does he do? He's not going to sit and take his medicine. He does a little bit, but it's all kind of just underhanded. Like instead, he he knows I need to take my authority back. And how does he do it? Is by subverting everything. Lionel sits on the throne to agitate the king. That's the whole point. He never says this is what I'm doing. Instead, he's just trying to get the result because he'd lost all trust and authority, but hadn't given up on helping Bertie. He's about to go through his coronation and he needs help. Or, or maybe and, uh, Lionel just, his ego wouldn't admit defeat <laughs> and saying that he was wrong. 
probably a little bit of both, but I love it because on it's also a little bit of him being a friend, of course, and a little bit of a father figure because there's that moment at the end of the clip. What does he tell him? You have such perseverance, Bertie. You're the bravest man I know. Those are the words his father could never say to his face. And now he's saying it directly to him. Yes. And it could be seen on the one hand as a very kind and loving gesture. It could also be seen as a very manipulative gesture. And knowing Lionel, it's probably a little bit of both. Because Lionel's philosophy that he says at at the beginning is that tricks are important, right? Uh, Whenever they come back after listening to the record... And um, he's like, can't you do them like you treat them, give, do those tricks the way you got them to speak on the record? And he's like, look, tricks are important, you know, um, but there's also these other things, these uh, more internal things that we need to figure out. And so him playing with his head, you know, on, on by sitting in the throne and getting to speak and yell and lose his temper and show him that I can help you um, and you can do this uh, and that everything I was saying to you in the park is you know is, is accurate i did it the wrong way like it's all right there um and and playing in, in right in harmony with his his whole philosophy and, and his approach to uh speech pathology uh therapy and so yeah the with that i think the real fun thing for me watching this movie and it's right in line with your point earlier man the cinematography and directing Oh my God. So the direction I'm going to take this is probably not where people would expect, but I think there might be, I don't know. This is just what I see. And I'm not saying this is an absolute thing. I'm just saying this is what I see when I watch this film. Intentional, not intentional, me making stuff up. I don't know. I don't want to claim to know. This is just the most interesting way to watch it. I think, which is the way they frame George throughout this movie. I think it's really fascinating because it oftentimes feels like he's being pushed around the edges of the frame. And when he's in the center, when they do put him in the center, there's often these foreground elements blocking him or he's really far away and just diminished. He's small. Um, And so where and when and why he's being framed all feels very intentional to me. Now you could also read it as, One, maybe he's having to fight to get to the middle, or perhaps he's avoiding the center of the frame and he's, he's trying to escape it until, you know, he's thrust into it through circumstance or people around him. Like it's all really fascinating, you know, psychologically uh, to be thinking about his headspace and why and when and where uh, he is in the, in the frame. And then, you know, you think about, and so sometimes it's just composition wise, they're putting him around, you know, the frame, the edges, sometimes he's squished down, squeezed down. Uh, sometimes he's, you know, a little bit bigger and, you know, on the edge and uh, et cetera. But sometimes it's really through lighting. Like if you listen to when he sits down to listen to the record of him uh, doing Shakespeare and you're seeing his face, Oh man, what a beautiful, beautiful shot because he's sitting right there, right in the like middle right third. And so on the one hand, you could say, man, he's eating up a a ton of frame, but the lighting in that shot blacks out half of his face, the half that's sitting towards the center of the frame. And instead it makes him still feel like he's on the edge of the frame. Like 
the the part that's lit is like way on the right side of your frame. And so it's like he's so close and yet so far. The goal is right there, but he doesn't know how to get there. And so there's all kinds of interesting psychological things that you could read into uh, that kind of stuff. Um, until, my man, we get towards the end of the, f- uh, the film when he's uh, uh, been named king. And he gets into his room. He's all alone. And then we plop him right down in the center of the frame. And he's sitting at his desk. And there's really nothing obstructing our view of him. And he's uh, and his wife comes in, right? And she's sitting, standing next to him. She's right by his side. What does he do? Now the pressure's on him. He's right there in the middle of the frame. He collapses. He breaks down crying. And so there's a whole new psychological element of, well, here he is. He can't escape it. How's he going to hold up? He's not. He's a wreck. Um, and he just can't hold up to living right there in the middle of the frame. And it's so, it's so beautiful. We get to the, to the end of the film where he's doing the, the, the war speech, right? They've declared war and he's got to give this speech about it. Right. And as he's prepping for the speech in that little private room with Lionel, oh, this whole sequence is amazing. Cause I love, love, love his, his vulnerability here. Right. And that whole thing is set up so beautifully with the stiffness throughout the film of royalty and his refusal to reduce his status to Lionel. Um, and now we're watching him prepare the speech. And what is he doing? He's singing. He's dancing, twirling around the room like a ballerina. Um, he's trying anything, everything Lionel suggests without hesitation, with full effort, full confidence. It's so beautiful. And then you get to the, uh, uh, the him speaking, right? And he's huge in the frame. He's on, Whenever he's delivering the speech, he's huge. He's, and we're looking at him right through the, micro, uh, the microphone's frame. Um, he's just eating up the entire frame, something we haven't really seen a lot of throughout the entire film. And maybe since the beginning, like I, I, I'd have to double check, but I want to say we see some really big shots of him failing at the beginning. Um, and now we're seeing really big shots of him doing pretty well. Uh, and well, and in those it, shots at the beginning, it has this kind of like almost fisheye wide, yeah. super wide where we feel like this isn't natural. This isn't normal. This is not how this is his perspective of like ev- the world is like kind of wrapping around me kind of thing. And we don't have that at the end. It's like. Yeah. Yeah. It's this kind of vertigo feeling of I'm, I'm going to topple over at any second. The world is off kilter, even though it's technically not. Um, yeah. And I love throughout all of that, you know, the reactions are so big between the opening, the closing, and there's some mixed in throughout of the audience, whoever's listening and the crowds, um, reacting to his speeches. It lets us know how he's doing, right? Sometimes they're bored. Sometimes they're embarrassed. Uh, usually they're all disappointed um, and they're just kind of cringing like, God, this is my king or this is the the royalty. Like you can see and gauge how he's doing based on everyone's reactions more and more and more. I, as, as I study film and work on my own stuff, I just, I want to sit with reactions. I don't care who's talking and what they're saying and how they're saying it, unless it's really, really, really important. Instead, I want to see the impact of whatever's being said on screen. Um, Cause that's good, right? That's how you know it's good writing. As if there is a reaction, if there is an impact that words are being felt, um, let's let's feel it. Let's feel the weight of those words through everyone around the speaker in any given context. Um, I think that often says a lot. But he gets through the, the the big finale, and 
everything's great. He's high fiving, fist bumping, you know, booty bumps with, with everyone down the hall. Um, they they line they line up in rows, and he does the whole like NBA player entering the arena, right? Low high fives, um, running through the gauntlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he he gives the LeBron chalk in the air, like the whole thing, right? Um, and the last shot, he gets out onto the balcony. And now he's in full view of everyone. This thing that he's been avoiding, right? Now, what's he doing? He's comfortably waving to everyone in full view. Dead center of the frame. Not obscured at all. No weird lens effects. It's just him right there in the middle of the frame, eating it up. He's going to be okay. It's just a beautiful kind of visual story of him trying to get to the middle, unobscured, with confidence, in full light, right? There's, there's no shadow, not an inch of shadow. Um, yeah, it's just full of confidence. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful visual story that they're telling here. So when I have a question for you as a director, when, when you're thinking of when you're, when you're, you know, writing and blocking and all that stuff and, you know, it comes time to, to shoot. I mean, well, I guess when you're writing, are you always thinking that or, how does how do how do you think about that? Does it just come naturally? Is it because it's such a creative decision, right? You know where you're going to put somebody in a frame, how you're going to light them to tell the story. Does that kind of just come out with the writing almost? Since you kind of you write and you shoot, or does it come out when you're on set and you're thinking about it, or do you have to work at that? You know, like is it better as a creative kind of like just brain dump, like let it happen or is it you think through it? Yeah. For me, it, it comes part and parcel with the writing. That is to your point. Like that's the nice thing about being a writer director is I get to think about this while I'm writing the script and I'll often in my screenwriting, leave myself little crumb trails so that I can remember, you know, in three months when I come back to the script, Oh, this is how I was thinking of shooting this. Yeah, that's going to work really well. Um, and so I can cheat and add in like POV shots or um, little cheat codes of angles, uh, a oneer that goes through multiple rooms. A lot of times in screenwriting, the technical thing is to, uh, you know, say, you know, interior bedroom continuous interior kitchen they walk from one to the next and you just new slug lines every single time you're changing rooms is the normal way to do it now not all screenwriters do that but i've noticed a lot of times the screenwriters who don't do that are also directors um they because they understand oh yeah this is a different location now they also try to indicate a change in venue some other kind of way so that their line producer can go through the script and say, oh, this is three different rooms that we need to have prepped and a location for blah, blah, blah. That's all really important stuff. But whenever I am thinking through a story, I am thinking what makes the most sense? Where's the emotion coming from in the story? So like I, I did this uh, personal story, you know, last winter um, in, no, in November, and I spent a lot of time thinking about where the emotion was and what do I want to be feeling? What do I want the audience to feel and identify with in the scene? Because there's a scene where someone learns some really bad news and yet we're not watching that person. Instead, we're watching someone else who knew the bad news was coming and you're reading all kinds of guilt and shame and emotion on this person. And the audience 
already understands all that. And if you just let them sit and watch this person. And so I don't remember how much I wrote that into the script, but I certainly knew on the day where I was going to be placing the camera. Um, and so that became just kind of fluid stuff. And so thinking through something like King speech, I can imagine David Seidler's writing and I don't know how much of that's coming in. Instead, I think it's the genius of Tom Hooper, um, who's done just some incredible works. He's had some incredible flops as well. Uh, for every King speech, uh, I guess someone could make a cat, right? Uh, that's just part of the game. You know, you take swings and sometimes you strike out. <laughs> that's right, dear God. <laughs> Lord have mercy on your soul, Tom. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I can imagine him reading the script and thinking about the voice and thinking about uh, this, this, this king and his voice and imagining, man, what's a voice? What does it look like? And how can I, you know, metaphorically insert that into the film? Well, if a voice is, if you're thinking about a voice and looking straight at a voice, it's a mouth and it's just, uh, dead center of the uvula, you know, down the throat. And you can imagine all the centering and you're like, this guy doesn't have a voice. He should never be sitting perfectly in the middle, like this uvula in the throat. Uh, instead, he should be bouncing all around and he can't find his centering. And so I can imagine kind of script noting or, uh, you know, jotting down a bunch of notes and ideas, kind of word association games um, and saying, okay, here's an idea and talking with, you know, UDP, Danny Cohen, uh, who he works with a lot and saying, okay, yeah. And so I think it's just this weird game of let's just bounce around some ideas uh, combined with the, I mean, you're doing a, to some extent a biography or not a biography, a, a biopic. And you have all these photographic references and like, okay, how can we shoot these things that feels in tandem with what they were doing back then? Yeah. I think it all plays together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also it, it, it also feels like a, a film made for the person making it. Right. Which I love that kind of stuff. Like, you know, you make something as best as you possibly can, but you're really making it for yourself and then hoping that people like it. That's that's what I feel like this film felt like to me. I'm watching this guy or these people make something that they would want to watch because you you think about there's not really too much to, to this story, mm -hmm. you know. And so how would I want to how would how would I want to see this character? I would want to see this see Lionel as this guy, you know, and I know that we have reports of <clears throat> the type of guy he is, but I would want to see him. Yeah. I think Jeffrey Rush would be perfect in this. And, and I would want to see him like be pretty aggressive, you know, sit on, why not sit on the, on the throne? I guarantee you that did not happen probably, <laughs> but maybe, maybe it did. Who knows? But I would like to see that. And so we're going to put that in there. And, and how are we going to, frame him. Okay. Well, let's, let's frame him, you know, kind of like low a lot of times and then, um, have him standing over the, the would be King, uh, birdie at the beginning while bidding down and he's standing up talking to him like, yeah, let's do these kinds of things. It just seems like something where they want to put it, they wanted to make a movie for themselves or tell this story the way that they would want to see it. And then it just turned out to be great because everybody had, I guarantee you everybody had the same vision on this film. It just feels like it was all put together from the lighting to the directing, to the writing, to the acting, to right. the cinematography. It just, you know, you can tell when it works. Right. And so and anyway, I, yeah. Yeah. And I love, I mean, 
to your point, like there is not a lot happening in this film. And I can just imagine sitting and writing this and thinking, no one's ever going to read this. No one's ever going to make it to the end of this script, let alone want to produce it. Um, the one shot I have is it's about a king. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and a really dramatic time in world history, right? World War II, the, the, the birth of that and where England was and, uh, the importance of this character in the context of that war, because no one needs to be told currently the importance of World War II and Hitler, right? Uh, we, we, we get it. And so I love that they don't really mangle that. It's, a, it's such a light touch the entire way. And to have the confidence to say, I'm going to tell a story where hardly anything happens at all. We're going to have a bunch of moments where also nothing hardly happens. And it's going to be the most compelling thing you've ever seen. <laughs> Like that takes so much gall to to kind of fight these basic bitch three act you know screenplay. I, I don't want to call out any screenplay book authors or anything, but it's just uh, it all comes across so rote when you listen to how people think you should write. Yeah, and instead just say I'm going to tell the story. I'm going to find out what are the important beats. Things fall apart, you know, towards the middle. And then they kind of fall apart again and then they kind of fall apart again. And, uh, you know what, we, we just make it work because that's friendships and that's life. And, uh, it's all gonna, it's all gonna play. Now I think you can back your way in. I would be shocked if this guy actually, uh, sat and used any kind of formal structure methods. Like, I don't think he was thinking about first act, second act, third act, uh, in any strong sense. Um, I think those things are useful as some kind of like general an analytical tool after the fact. Um, but sitting and thinking about that stuff while you're trying to write a story, I think that's death. Uh, instead, mm-hmm. like go through this character's world. Like you were saying, what's interesting. What would, what would really push birdies buttons? Okay. Let's put Lionel in a chair. Um, and now man, he's outraged. Why is he outraged? And how can we use that? And yeah, ah, man, it, it does feel personal. The whole thing. And obviously it is because again, Seidler has his own personal history, but everyone to your point, the director, it seems like everyone got on the same page and um, just understood how to make every moment really sing without feeling melodramatic. Yeah. Because it's, it's really easy to, to step over that line of melodrama Um and that's where casting, to your point again, really comes in key because Colin Firth, he's one of the best to ever do it. You know, Jeffrey Rush is legend. Like, this guy's on a different planet. Like, the fact that, you know, we've, we've had him for so long is uh, just just incredible. Yeah, letting professionals do their thing and then Helena Bonham Carter coming into a role where she's hardly on screen but it feels like she's there the entire time. And her, every time the camera sees her, it's a punch. Jeez. Yeah. God. It's, it's kind of like, um, it just feels, well, both of the, there are, you know, two women figures. I mean, Lionel's wife, we don't see very much, but she is, she's there when she's necessary. When Lionel is upset that he hurt, you know, that he did something wrong, you know, with Birdie, or said the wrong thing with Birdie, she says, well, then just say you're sorry. And then we see him the very next shot. He's at Birdie's wanting to apologize. Now Birdie doesn't see him, you know, but she said the right thing at the right time. And 
Helena Bonham Carter's character does the same thing. Like she finds Lionel for the, in, in the first place. She pushes him when he needs to be pushed. She says the tough things that need to be said. Um, but at the same time, she knows who he is and who he's going to become. And so she, there's you just always see her rooting for him always, no matter what. And it's just the definition of a partner and, and a, of a strong partner that I don't care if you stammer. Like I, I, I see it in you and I, I loved you because of it. She even says that she says that she loved him because of it. Cause maybe they'd leave him alone, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, just so happened that they didn't. But I just, I, I think that the female characters in this, this film, those two specifically are like really strong. I love that Elizabeth, Elizabeth has a role like Queen Elizabeth that, that just passed. She yeah. has a role in it, which is just so beautiful. It's just to see her as a baby girl, you know, a little girl. It's just so amazing. And those little girls were amazing too. Like I know they didn't yeah. do a ton, but if you if you just watch their physical acting, yeah, they're 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 killing it. Like it's really really amazing uh, performances. Like just the ability to rise and fall on a moment, be entertained, um, and and engage with their dad. And make it feel like that's their dad. Like there are actually incredible performances from these two little girls. Um, yeah. The and, scene where where he's just become king and he walks down the hallway mm. and they want to say "Daddy," but they say "Your high or they they curtsy. The way, well, first off, the way they did it is amazing. But his response is he doesn't say a word. But he knows like what he wants to say is I'll always be I'm your dad, but he knows what he is now. And so he knows what he has to convey. And so he just kisses them in order to tell them he's their dad still without saying it. Absolutely. And there's this other layer of, you know, Queen Elizabeth to be right. His daughter is, is, is the next. I need to start helping her. Yes. So that when she gets to be me, she doesn't deal with what I deal with. Yes. I feel like that's all just nuances. God. Mm-hmm. And his oh, last, my last note, uh, it's not really a note. It's just something I keep thinking about every time I, I watch the scene. The first session between him and Lionel, um, Colin Firth is just daggers because you can see his resistance, his dignity and the frustration that this guy is being impertinent. Um, and he's, he's asking all these personal questions. He doesn't want to answer. But at the same time, he's desperate. You can feel his desperation for answers. Uh, And so there's all this subtextual things happening on through his face. Um, And you read it so clearly. Uh, It's absolutely masterful. I'm pretty sure he won best actor. Did he not? I I, I mean, he had to this. It's so easy to forget that while you're looking that up, it's so easy to forget that what these actors receive. He did. Okay. What these actors receive are words on a page. Yeah. Like it's when you watch this movie or any movie, really, it's hard to forget that that character didn't exist before that person said those words in front of a camera. Didn't exist. Right. So even if they did, even if it's a true story. So all he got was fine, you know, that. And he turned that into this character. It's just... A ma- like a masterclass. I don't yeah. know what else to say. Else yeah. to say. Him and and Rush, just perfect. Just so perfect. he did win. Okay, yeah, he did. Uh, 
Best 2011. I wouldn't be surprised if Jeffrey Rush won as well. Best screenplay, best best picture. Uh, Well-deserved. Like, I, I think history will smile very kindly on, on those awards. And yeah, it's just watching Colin Firth go through all these things because at the same time, you know, he's playing a king, but he's a king that's been humiliated uh, with a lot of pain. And to make you identify with someone that's lived this life of privilege um, and who in some ways was a tyrant, uh, depending on where you live in the world. Um, like it's a lot to hold on your shoulders as an actor and it's, it's magic, great writing, great directing, and, uh, clearly great, uh, performances. Yeah. Um, I'm good, man. Couldn't agree more, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> couldn't agree more man. Uh, I could talk about this film all day. It's, it's brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, what are you going to recommend this week? So, uh, yesterday I took my whole family who's in town visiting us in the Bay area to see the new Pixar film elemental. And I'm going to recommend that film. It was having nothing to do obviously with King's speech. I wanted to recommend a Colin Firth film, but I I really enjoyed it because I, I sat down to watch it and I was like, okay, this isn't going to get me you know, how Pixar films get you. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah, this isn't going to get me. I'm just taking my kids to see a film. And it, it got me. It, there were, there were a couple moments, especially towards the end where that's the point that got me. Um, and I think it's a beautiful story with a good, I, you could say subtext meaning behind it, but it's pretty on the, on, (laughs) on the face of what it's about and, and, and important, you know, and it's been told a bunch of times, but it's just really cool to tell it in a, in a, in a way like this, like Pixar can do. Uh, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I'm recommending Elemental this week. Nicely done. So I'm going to recommend the film after we did RRR. Um, we had a lot of, uh, our Indian audience. Uh, we finally found them. Uh, they, they've, been, <laughs> <laughs> we, they've, they've been lurking in the wings, uh, just waiting, I guess. Um, and you know, they, they pounced and I got a lot of recommendations to go check out, uh, this movie on Amazon Prime called Sardar Udom. And I did. And it's really, I think, appropriate for a recommendation this week because um, it takes place in the same era as King's Speech. And it's it's about kind of the impact of the empire, right? And, and what it had, what other people were going through while all this is happening. Same exact time frame. Um, and so imagine... Yes, you know, you have uh, kings and queens going through it, um, but you also have a whole country, India, uh, who's being ruled over by these same people. Um, and it's 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 really, you know, heartbreaking and tragic and, you know, worth watching. Uh, uh, obviously, a true story. And so I really appreciate that. Um, appreciate those uh, recommendations. And I got a few other films that, you know, they were recommending that, you know, I'll work my way through. But yeah, Sardar Udom it's it'll it's got some punch and so yeah um stay tuned for next week uh now we've gone from india to ireland to japan uh to to england and now we finish our impromptu whirlwind tour through the world and germany where we go and uh, take a look at Run Lola Run. And so if you're a fan of indie films, you'll certainly be, you know, uh, aware of Run Lola Run. If you haven't already seen it, um, then 
you know, take a look. I haven't watched it in a while. Like I've watched this movie one time. Um, and so I'm excited. It's a really short runtime. It's like 85, 86 minutes, something like that. And so I have a fascination, uh, I've said a few times on the show, uh, with sub 90 minute films. And so I'm excited to see this again for the first time in a while. Uh, yeah, see, see if it holds up. Run, Lola, run. Go check it out. Check it out. Uh, yeah. So if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, drop us a review, subscribe, leave us a note. If there's something you would like us to talk about uh, and the kinds of things you find interesting. And if you want to leave a note on this episode in particular, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com. Uh, the pestlepodcast.com <laughs> slash the king's speech. All together, one word. All one word. The king's <laughs> speech. Speech. Uh, and our quote of the day is from King George III. I wish nothing but good. Therefore, everyone who does not agree with me is a traitor and a scoundrel. <laughs> it's hilarious, but it's true, right? It's true. It's so true. You don't want good? Well, you're a scoundrel. That's so it's good. Funny. Yeah. So King George III is referenced uh, by Bertie as being the Mad King. And so I don't know if this is like part of his madness or if it's funny because I read it and it's hilarious to me um, because like all I want are good things. So anyone who disagrees with anything I say, it clearly doesn't want good things and therefore they're right. you know, uh, evil. Um, yeah. Or if like this is why they called him Mad King George, I don't know. But I I want to say King George the Third is also the king that uh, created the great divorce between um, his his bastard child America uh, and mm. and and them. And so yeah, I I just think it's funny. I was just curious what interesting King George. I was looking for something from King George the First. Like let's go back to the original um, before all these <laughs> copycats. Um, but, <laughs> But I could I, I stumbled on the OG, this, the OG. Yeah, instead we get King George the Third, uh, who's you know clearly a bit touched. <laughs> so that's hilarious. <laughs> oh my god, awesome! Well, fantastic. Uh, well, yeah. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. I know I did, and I learned a lot. Thank you, Wes, for your insight there, because this such a great, oh, great movie. We hope that you guys think the same. But if you don't. I mean, let us know why, because I'd really like to hear why <laughs> somebody does not love this movie. Oh, it's 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 boring. You are you're obviously not paying attention, yeah. uh, but whatever. You know, you can be wrong. Your opinion yeah. can be wrong. That's fine. Uh, but make sure you share with us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, subscribe, review us wherever you get your podcasts. It all it all helps um, and shares with a friend. And if there's a film you'd like to see us do or hear us do, please share it with us. Maybe we'll cover it. Who knows? We've done that before. Uh, until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. <laughs>